Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com national editor, Matt Myers. Matt, we have five fun topics to get to today on the StatCast podcast. We're going to look at the early hard luck hitter in baseball, a guy who's crushing and getting very little out of it. We're going to talk about the most interesting reliever that you've never heard of that Matt and I are suddenly fascinated by. I really can't wait about that. Uh, the most important reliever that you should actually be kind of worried about, your obligatory Shohei Otani update, and also how baseball's hottest team created two good relievers. But first, baseball's hard luck hitter is, drum roll, who is it? Carlos Santana. Carlos Santana. Big free agent signing for the Philadelphia Phillies. Don't worry, Phillies fans. The numbers don't look great, but all signs point to production. He's hitting right now, uh, entering, entering games of today, Wednesday, 167, 250, 417. That is, of course, terrible. He has a 133 batting average on balls in play, which should tell you a little bit about uh, the luck or lack of it. And what's interesting about him is he is arguably hitting the ball harder than anybody in baseball, you could say. He has uh, three, there are 308 guys who have 10 balls in play, and he has a hard hit rate, which we define as balls hit 95 miles an hour or harder, of 69.6 miles, uh, 69.6% of his balls are hard hit. That is the third best in baseball of those 308 guys. And he's hitting a buck sixty-seven. What is going on here? Well, it's interesting when you first when uh, this this all came about because Mike mentioned something about how Carlos Santana is the most shifted hitter in baseball. I think you said he's been shifted on every single one of his at bats from the left side this year. Is all, that that or all but one? Yeah. All, so he's the most consistently shifted hitter in baseball. So when I first saw that he had um, twenty-one hard-hit balls and fifteen hard-hit outs, I'm like, well, he must have just be hitting hard ground balls into the shift. And, well, like, in that case, like, well, that's his own fault. He should learn to spray the ball, whatever, yada, yada, yada. But then I looked at the spray chart, and I was fascinated because none of, like, basically one of these is into, he basically has one out into the shift this year. Most of these are, like, line drives to deep center field that are being caught. Yeah, the last three days, or the last two days, he has hit three balls to dead center that were all caught by Billy Hamilton, and they were all on the warning track. One of them was a 92% hit probability, 105 miles an hour, 29 degrees of launch angle, 395 feet for an out. The other two were each 74% hit probabilities. They're all really, the problem here is they hit them all to dead center. Hit them down the line, these are home runs, right? But if you look at the spray chart, there's about five or six balls to dead center that were crushed that were outs. And one ball he hit in Atlanta that Nick Marcakis made a nice play on that almost certainly would have been out. In Philadelphia, out as in out of the ball, out of, over out, the fence. Yes, as in a, <laughs> as in a home run. Uh, he has 15 hard hit outs. It's the most in Major League Baseball. No one else has more than 12. Um, you know, I, I I know you look at the 167 in Philadelphia and you freak out. I feel pretty good about Carlos Santana, right? I mean, just based on his history, he's been one of the most consistent hitters uh, in baseball. And you found something interesting about his expected weighted on base. Yeah, numbers. so expected weighted on base is the metric we use that that combines batted ball contact, quality of contact with strikeouts and um, walks. It's on the weighted on base scale. So weighted on base average, the league average is what, 320, 330 or so? Um, this year, his, so thus far, um, his expected weight on base is 474, and his actual uh, weight on base is 273. That's a gap of 201 points. That's a lot. So put it this way. Um, minimum 30 balls in play. There are 195 guys. His expected the difference that that difference of two hundred one points ranks one ninety four out of one ninety five. <laughs> but coincidentally, one ninety five is Yonder Alonso, the guy who essentially replaced him in Cleveland. So there's something there's some mojo going on there. Uh, Yonder Alonso, um, take take heart, Indians fans. Expected weighted on base of four ninety three with an actual weighted on base of four sixty five. So he's hitting the ball hard as well. Uh, good things will come. Um, incidentally, number one on that list, Didi Gregorius. 
who uh, has an expected weighted on base of 396, which is still very good, but an actual weighted on base of 548. Uh, so, yeah, it's been a good start for Didi Gregorius. Uh, and for Santana, I think it's a combination of, you know, poor luck. Obviously, these things happen. Uh, some pretty good defense in the outfield. Some bad batted ball placement being, like, straight to dead center, the deepest part of the park. And also, I think cold weather. It's been really, really cold across a lot of America lately. And as we remember from last year with the World Series, the physics taught us that for every 10 degrees, you can gain or lose three feet of distance. And when you see some of these balls on the warning track— as compared to, let's say, a sunny June day that's 40 degrees warmer than it you know was in the first week of the season, that might be a big difference for him. That could be, yeah, that could, I mean, doing the math here, that's 12 feet right there. Three, that uh, gets him over the fence a couple times on some of these. All right, so Carlos Santana is our capital letter guy who is going to hit better, we promise, and uh, that has never let us down in the past. <laughs> Moving on to Shohei Otani, I think you've heard a little bit about Shohei Otani. He's been he's been okay, I guess. Uh, as a hitter, he leads baseball in hard hit rate. As I said earlier, Carlos Santana was third in hard hit rate of 308 guys with 10 balls in play. Shohei Otani is first, a 73.3% hard hit rate. Second is Juan Mancada of the suddenly hard-hitting Chicago White Sox. And third is Santana. Now, what I like about this list is obviously it's very early in the season, right? But the top five of the hard-hit list right now, Otane, Moncada, Santana, and then tied for fourth is uh, Robinson Cano and Randall Gritchick. Guys, guys who hit the ball hard, right? At the bottom of the list, Ichiro at 5% and D Gordon at 3%. These are things I don't need to say a huge sample of to know it's real. Is what uh, I'm trying yeah, to say. Randall Gritchick is also in that same class with Carlos Santana. He has 15 hard-hit balls and 12 hard-hit outs. So he's, uh, <laughs> he's also hitting in some uh, quote-unquote bad luck thus far. And as a pitcher, Shohei Otani is ninth in fastball velocity, four-seam velocity, 97.1 of 322 pitchers with 10 fastballs thrown. That's ninth. And he has a 44.8% swing and miss rate on his splitter. It's the second highest of any pitch type with at least 10 thrown this year behind only Edwin Diaz's slider. We've seen very little Shohei Otani, and the hype scene's extremely real. I mean, he has just proven himself that the, the skills are you know beyond reproach at this point. The the splitter might be the most fun pitch in baseball already. It's amazing. Already. <laughs> he, th- he throws it at like 90 miles an hour. It drops off the table. You, you could tell major league hitters it's going to come. And I don't think you can do anything about it. And what's really fun about him is he kind of came over with a reputation as a guy who had three really good pitches. His slider is supposed to be really good. It hasn't been that good so far. Like, there's still improvement there. That's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, he's uh, He's been a joy, and now he's basically—it's like college baseball. He's their Sunday starter. He basically starts on Sundays, which is a bummer because, at least for me, uh, uh, having— uh, little kids usually out and about on Sunday afternoons. It's not as easy to watch them. <laughs> I, you know what? I had the exact same thought. I kind of manipulated things last Sunday to make sure I could be home for that. But I don't think I can pull that off every week. So but, hopefully they, they move them by like a day. They, and they have a Sunday night game coming up in a couple of weeks, I think, against the Yankees. So uh, hopefully that, uh, that, that'll that be one clear opportunity to watch Otani pitch. Do you think it's fair to say that with all the hype around him and the fact that he's obviously a big story uh, in, in Japan as well, that he is the most important pitcher in the world? Not the best because, you know, Kershaw shares or Kluber, right? But... Is he the most well-known pitcher right now in the world? Uh, yes. There's a reason I asked that. Moving on to Tyron Guerrero, who probably nobody in the world knows. Okay, this is a pitcher uh, we're very excited to talk about, and I think he's he's probably not maybe someone anybody knows. But independently, Matt and I both like came up to each other this week and said, "Hey, what do you know about Tyron Guerrero? Because he's really fascinating, and he's he's fascinating for like nine different reasons." What so you start? Go ahead. Yeah, I was watching uh, the Mets Marlins this week, and he comes in. I knew nothing about him, and I see this guy. He's six foot eight. He's throwing a hundred with eighty-seven mile an hour sliders and making Mets hitters look foolish. 
And I was just like, who is this guy? My first instinct was, oh, this must be some guy they got as a throw-in in one of their many trades this offseason. I kind of assumed like, oh, you know, the Marlins were asking for a lot of like random guys in trades. I was like, you know, for all I know, this was one of the guys they got uh, from the Cardinals for Ozuna. Like, oh, now I can see, you know, maybe what the Cardinals were getting at. But no, nothing like that at all. He, Tyron Guerrero, and I'll get to like what makes him so impressive in a second. He was part of what is quickly becoming the most fascinating trade in baseball history. I want someone to do an oral history of this entire trade. Tyron Guerrero was signed as an international free agent with the Padres back in 2009. So he's 27 years old now. He was traded uh, in 2016, July 2016, by the Padres to the Marlins in this deal. Andrew Kashner was the highlight of the deal. This is the quote-unquote Andrew Kashner deal. Andrew Kashner going from San Diego to to Miami. Okay. Right. With Colin Ray. Right, So Colin Ray and Andrew Kashner go from San Diego to Miami. Headed back was Josh Naylor, first baseman. Carter Capps was someone we talked about. Well, let's clarify. It was, it was actually, let's go back a second. It was Andrew Kashner, Colin Ray, Tyron Guerrero going well, yes. from San Diego to, I thought, to Miami. I thought that was understood. Okay. But yes, those three. For Josh Naylor, a minor league first baseman. Carter Capps, who was someone we talked about at length the first year of StatCast because he was the guy who hopped off the mound, crazy extension. Luis Castillo, who has suddenly turned into one of the better pitchers in baseball with the Reds, and Jared Kosar. So that was an interesting deal right there. Colin Ray makes one start for the Marlins, blows out his arm, gets returned back to San Diego because of some uncertainties about whether he was already injured on his way. So Luis Castillo ends up back with the Marlins, (laughs) and then they ended up trading him for Dan Straley. Anyway, it's like my favorite trade of all time. But the point of this is, of all these names here, probably the one you thought about the least at the time was Tyron Guerrero. Because who'd heard of him? Nobody. He was him. like he was someone that showed up on you know Padres you know top prospects lists you know four years ago, but it was never like a big right. big name. Right. So he had made one. He had appeared in one game for the Padres that year. Didn't appear in the major leagues at all last year. So far this year, he has gotten into six games for the Marlins, and he has an eight fifty three ERA. And immediately you're wondering what the hell we like <laughs> about this guy. As Matt said, six foot eight uh, can throw hundred miles an hour. He's one of only five guys so far this year to throw hundred miles an hour. He's done it five times. That is the third most in baseball. Araldis Chapman and Jordan Hicks have thrown more. Uh, Luis Severino and Bruce Rondon have also thrown hundred miles an hour. In those six innings, six and the third innings, ten strikeouts and two walks, and he struck out some really quality hitters. Listen to some of the names who have whiffed against Tyron Guerrero: Anthony Rizzo, Ian Happ. Chris Bryant, those three all in a row, his first three strikeouts of his career on opening day. Scott Kingery, Wilson Contreras, uh, Carlos Santana, again, J.P. Crawford, and Ahmed Rosario, also Victor Caratini and Vince Velasquez. Those are some quality major league hitters. And the Rosario, when you were talking about the other night, he, as you said, 100 miles an hour down the middle and then a fall-off-the-table slider. You, you look at this guy and you think, oh, my God, how is this guy not a superstar? It hasn't really worked out that way for him. You might be wondering why. There's a uh, an outcome reason and a stack cast reason. Here's the stack cast reason. His fastball, despite the fact that he throws it insanely hard, doesn't have a lot of movement to it. It is a low spin, relatively straight fastball. It has a, uh, a spin rate of 2,098 RPM. We'll call it 2,100. The major league average is 2,263. If you look at about 250 guys who have thrown 25 four-seamers, that is the 13th percentile. Uh, that's a sinking high-speed fastball, which is kind of unusual. He has a 63% ground ball rate so far overall. That's interesting. That's not that's not like what you see from this guy. But he's also, he's a two-pitch pitcher, fastball slider. But if you can do that, who cares? If you I mean, I, when I watched him against the Mets, I was like, this guy's stuff is as good as they really were, <laughs> really were in baseball. Right. So I'm, I'm instantly fascinated by Tyron Guerrero. What's also interesting is you dug up um, 
the MLB Pipeline scouting report from him from two years ago. <laughs> I love this and it so says, much. <laughs> when he was signed out of Columbia in 2009, he was a tall, skinny, 170-pound right-hander, 170-pounder with well below average velocity. <laughs> I love that. That's, I mean, when you talk about projection, obviously you get projection with a kid who's <laughs> turned out to be six foot eight. Yeah, I think 210 he's listed at, so you put on 40 pounds, that'll add some heat to your fastball there. Uh, also... As you might expect from a guy like this, a lot of trouble throwing strikes. Last year, three levels in the minors, seven walks per nine. Is that part of the mystique is that you go up, you see this guy who's all arms and legs, throws 100, and you're pretty sure he has absolutely no idea where it's going? I mean, he's instantly, to me, like the most interesting guy on the Marlins, to be honest, but uh, that's... Uh... That's just that's just me and my weird my weird uh, you know obsessions with interesting like Statcast guys. It's funny we were talking. Uh, I noticed earlier today Sam Miller at ESPN did a did a story. He was like, "Here's your new favorite reliever," where he wrote, broke down like eight random relievers who you should like pay attention to now. Uh, number one was Richard Blyer, who we've talked about on this podcast, who had like this insanely good year last year. And I was like, as soon as I saw that, I was like, "Oh, Tyron Guerrero is totally going to be on this list," but. Even Sam Miller, even the great Sam Miller, missed on uh, on that one. What I like is that we both independently of one another said, "Hey, Tehran Guerrero." <sighs> so the point being, he is someone I am absolutely going to watch. Sticking in the NL East, the New York Mets off to somewhat of a good start. You might have heard, uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Speaking of guys that we like very much, Seth Lugo is a big part of this. Seth Lugo and Robert Kesselman have turned into. You know, I don't want to say bullpen aces. I guess it's a little early for that. But yeah, only a few innings each. They but... look fantastic. Like combined so far, twelve innings pitched, an ERA of 0.75, 16 strikeouts, and five walks. And you know, I don't expect that to keep up in this way. But I, I really like what the Mets have done, just because how it speaks to the modern way which you create relievers. These guys had combined for 55 starts with the team uh, since 2016, and Seth Lugo had actually won the number five starter job this year. And Zach Wheeler got shipped out because he was kind of terrible this spring. It was supposed to be Seth Lugo. As well, the five he was starter. going to be a placeholder until Jason Vargas <clears throat> came back. Sure, but he was he yes he was supposed to be the number five for the first couple times to the rotation. So the first start, his first start last Monday got rained out, and uh, they just went with Matt Harvey the next day. So Lugo got bumped, went in the bullpen, and then. When they needed the number five starter today, I think it actually was, they called up Zach Wheeler instead of uh, Seth Lugo. And I don't think it's because Zach Wheeler was so impressive in one start in AAA that they're like, oh, we made a mistake. We have to have Zach Wheeler. It's because I think they see that putting guys like Lugo, Gasselman, you know, some starting pitching success, but hardly elite starters into the bullpen uh, can have some some pretty fantastic results. They let the velocity play up. Throw your best pitch more. Don't turn a lineup over a couple times. It's it's funny how this works out. Yeah. <laughs> this far this year, they've entering Wednesday's games. They've combined for twelve innings, a .75 ERA, sixteen strikeouts, and five walks. Yes, yes, they um, have. And the, most notably is like they've both on more than one occasion pitched uh, multiple innings. Right. So uh, Mickey Calloway, who's come in and managed the bullpen very differently than Terry Terry Collins did, has been much more aggressive with how he's used these guys. You know, if they look good. Letting them pitch a second inning if they if they don't need to be pinch hit for. And Gazelman's a guy that when he came up a couple years ago, I thought was going to be like kind of a uh, a little bit of like Degrom two point a guy who suddenly like came up and had stuff suddenly played out better in the majors and was going to turn out to be a lot better than his minor league pedigree suggested. Granted, he played against uh, pitched against a lot of bad lineups in September two thousand sixteen, but he looked fantastic. He was throwing like a ninety mile an hour slider, uh, and then last year just never really came together for me. It was pretty pretty bad all year, but uh out of the bullpen it looks like he may have found a, a niche. I'm uh, I'm bullish on on both these guys. Yeah, really when a guy goes to the bullpen like this, the first thing you think of is cool, is he going to throw harder? Right? He doesn't have to pace himself. So, we looked at 355 pitchers who had 100 fastballs last year. I'm counting four seamers, two seamers, and sinkers, and also 10 uh fastballs this year. So, 355 guys. 
the biggest velocity increases. Seth Lugo and Robert Gesellman are both on the top 10 list. Lugo has jumped by 1.7 miles an hour. Gesellman has jumped by 1.3 miles an hour. Lugo is uh, the second biggest jump. Gesellman is the 10th biggest jump. There's a bunch of other guys on this list who have done the starting pitching to relief pitching conversion. Amir Garrett is number one. He's a reliever now. Buck Farmer, Colin McHugh with the Astros. A lot of these guys have gone to the bullpen see the velocity jump. And as you might expect, pitchers are more effective when they throw harder. You don't say. When you combine these two gentlemen, Lugo and Gesellman, uh, for their careers, when they throw their fastball 94 or higher, they allow a 244 batting average and a 355 slugging. Below that, 283 average and a 456 slugging percentage. A lot of this isn't rocket science. Yeah. You know, you throw the ball harder, you're going to do better. And it's easier to throw the ball harder when you're not turning over the lineup a few times. And then the second thing is, and this kind of ties back into a larger trend we've seen across baseball, which is fewer four-seamers, more moving pitches. So you've uh, you've probably heard once or twice on this show how we feel about Seth Lugo's curveball. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty good. So he didn't actually throw it that much last year. We were all very disappointed by this. He's starting to throw it more this year. The fastball usage, uh, his forcing fastball usage has dropped from about 55% to about 48%. Curveball and the slider are up. And when you combine that with what is really a nasty two-seamer, he had this sequence against Carlos Santana. Well, I guess this is the Carlos Santana show, where he had a moving two-seamer that made Santana look foolish and then dropped that hammer curve on him. And uh, you look at that and you go, oh, I, w- I want this. Uh, yeah. don't, I don't want him in the rotation. <laughs> yeah, so it's, 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 it's I mean, the, the big reason why the, the Mets have been off such a great start is the strength of their bullpen. These guys have been great. Uh, Jerry Familia has been great. Um, so it's they've had, they've had to... Go to them a lot because Stephen Matz and Matt Harvey are not getting past five innings, and Syndergaard and Grom actually haven't pitched that, haven't been that dominant despite the Mets being great. Those two guys haven't been that great, um, and they had to go to the bullpen. They played that Sunday night game in Washington where it went, you know, twelve innings, and Lugo pitched three innings, and Kuzman pitched two, I think. So that uh, important innings, yes, like, exactly. they, like in the ninth inning of a tie game, and it, it's funny because this wasn't necessarily the plan, I don't think, but this is an idea that I think a lot of people who follow the Mets kind of said all winter long, which is that. They have a lot of starting pitchers, but not a lot of guys who have proven they can be healthy all year long, right? But if you have everybody available, then you have your two horses at the front, and you put these guys in the bullpen and let them be like two or three inning relievers. And that's part of why I think the upgrade to Mickey Calloway is is like, I usually don't care about managers that much, but in this case, I think it was a big deal. I don't think the previous manager would have functioned in this way. I think this is huge for the Mets. It certainly is. I mean... I don't think they're going to go 161 and one, but it's manifesting itself in the way that they're winning these close games, and you, you know, you could see the the team seems to be responding to it. The Mets did have some bad news today, and we have some stackcast data on this. Travis Darno is on the disabled list with a partially torn UCL that's in his elbow. It's the latest in a long line of injuries for Travis Darno. Uh, the Mets so far have just one caught stealing and 12 steal attempts, but I believe you said that that is a pickoff. It wasn't even like a traditional yeah. caught stealing. Uh, this has always been an issue for the Mets. We uh, recently put up on Baseball Savant catcher data, uh, and so we have from last year 52 catchers who had at least 15 steal attempts at second base. Darnell was tied for 42nd of 52 in pop time at 2.0 seconds. Kevin Pulecki was 47th in pop time at 2.08 seconds. It's not exactly a strength of theirs, as you can see by the outcomes in terms of uh, uh, caught stealings. So they have called up for now uh, a prospect, Tomas Nito, who I didn't realize this until I saw someone tweet it today, actually nailed Ronald Acuna in the 2017 Futures game with a pop-time. the Futures time, game, the uh, AFL Fall-Star uh, game. Excuse me, AFL Fall-Star game with a pop-time of 1.91. I don't know if he could hit. He had a 287 on base at Double A <laughs> last year, but behind the plate, he seems like he'll probably be an upgrade. Although this might be a short-term thing until they can get a, a veteran backstop up there. Yeah, I think they've got uh, Jose Lobaton in the minors, but he's not on the 40 man, so they might need to, you know, move some things around. Nito's, Nito's kind of a prospect, so I wouldn't be surprised if they want to, you know, 
he was on the 40 man, so he's an easy quick fix, but I think they may want to get him back to the minors where he actually gets him at bats. So this early in the season, obviously you can't look at things like, you know, batting average or even wins above replacement or anything like that because it's just so early. You can look at skills, like hard hit baseballs seem to be a skill. Velocity seems to be a skill. And that is why I am so worried about Tommy Canley of the Yankees. I think we talked about him a lot last year too, where the velocity seemed to kind of come out of nowhere. He was dominant. He was one of the 15 or so best relievers in baseball last year. It was fantastic. As we used to joke when they made the uh, yes. the Todd Frazier, <laughs> David Robinson trade, it's like, it was actually the Tommy Canley trade because they had him under team control for like four more years, whereas Frazier was a free agent and Robertson is good, but also a lot more expensive. And uh, I think he's a free agent after this year. Yeah, so the Yankee bullpen's actually off to kind of a terrible start. A 5.16 ERA, that's 25th in Major League Baseball, 19th in expected weighted on base, so that ERA isn't entirely unearned. Uh, I'm not that worried about them overall. There's so much talent there. They're still first in strikeout rate by a lot, 34%. The Mets are in second place at 29%. The bullpen's going to be fine. There are so many good pitchers there. Tommy Canley is concerning. So last year, his velocity was 97.8 miles an hour. And uh, even if you just want to compare April to April, it was 98.1 miles an hour last April. This year so far, 95 miles an hour. Feels weird to say 95 is slow, but for him it is. Um, we compared, again, last year to this year in terms of fastball velocity. The biggest velocity drops, Tommy Canley, is fifth at minus 2.8 miles an hour. And if you look at the names above him, one of them is J.C. Ramirez, who dropped 3.1 miles an hour. Just went down with Tommy John surgery. That's not a good sign. One of them is Jarlin Garcia from the Marlins, who dropped 3 miles an hour. But that's a little unfair to him because last year he was a reliever. And this year he's still a reliever. But he's basically a starter because in his two games, he's had to pitch four innings and six innings because they've you know had some pitching issues and they had that game that won 17 innings. And then the guy who has dropped the most velocity, Matthew Boyd of the Tigers, 3.3 miles an hour, has five strikeouts in 13 innings. The short version is this is not a list you want to be on. And even worse for Canley is that it's dropped every single time he's pitched. His first game of the season, 96.1, cool. Then 95.8, and then 95, and then 94.5. And then last night against the Red Sox, where the, the Yankees got smashed 14-1, to 93.9. This is from a guy who was hitting, you know, 98-99 regularly last year. Now, he says he's not worried. He might be the only one. I, I am extremely worried about this. It's, uh, it's certainly alarming, and I'm sure the Yankees' uh, front office and coaching staff have taken note. I mean, the, the Yankee bullpen is certainly very deep and should still be very good. But when you look at him and the fact that, you know, I don't really think – Batantis, with the, sort of the mechanical struggles he's had and, you know, command issues, you, he's someone you really want to trust in big spots right now. That there's definitely a little bit of like, it doesn't look to be as uh, dominant as a as a unit as it appeared to be on paper when the season began. Chapman's barely thrown 100, you know. I, still, I kid because I still think Chapman is, is a dominant reliever. But what looked to be like the deepest, most powerful uh, unit, if, you, if, 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 uh, if Conley and... Batances aren't exactly what, what you kind of hope they would be. It's certainly not as overwhelming as we thought. Yeah, all the focus in New York right now is on Giancarlo Stanton, who's had a, a lot of a slump, right? He's struck out a lot, but that's just sort of what he does. He goes through this once or twice every year. Like, yeah, I'm not worried about it. He's had a couple of ridiculous slumps in his career. Yeah, I remember two years ago, he struck out at like a 45% rate for about six straight weeks. Yeah. Um, I'm not worried about Stanton. This is what he does. He will come out of it, and he'll be fine. I'm not worried about the bullpen, but I'm a little worried about the rotation, I think, because, you know, Sabathia is hurt, and uh, Severino did not look good last night at all. Now the Red Sox are a very good offense. Uh, but, the, you know, I think the rotation was always maybe somewhat of a weakness for the Yankees, and, uh, you know, the Jordan Montgomery didn't look that great the other day. 
I don't think it's going to be a long-term concern. I think they can always go get somebody. Um, but that seems to be more of a problem than I think I might have considered it to be a month ago. And also just the bullpen plays into that, right? Because like you used to think like, well, yeah, the rotation's not great, but they've got this deep bullpen. Well, if a couple of the relievers who were sort of expected to kind of help bridge that gap aren't what you hope that I mean I still think Yankees are a playoff team I did predict the Red Sox to win the division I will still stand one of by the few that. as I remember so. Uh, so I will still stand by that um, but I still think the Yankees are a playoff team um, interesting thing about the Red Sox that uh, our uh, researcher Andrew Simon pointed out to me uh, earlier today is that this offseason he wrote a piece over the winter about how the Red Sox were had the lowest swing rate on in zone pitches last year Thus far on the on the season, they're number one on swing run. Thank you, Alex Cora. <laughs> so they, uh, or it's another pit, their hitting coach they brought over from the uh, Dodgers. Well, Tim Hires, yes, yes. Um, but, but also Alex Cora. Yeah, I remember looking at this as well last year, and uh, it was it was something like uh, Mookie Betts and Xander Bogarts, or maybe it was Bradley. I can't remember which ones it was. Two of those three had watched the most in zone pitches, just watched them go by. And as if, if we've learned anything, it's if you get a hittable strike, you should crush it, and that's what they're doing. I now. mean, that, J- um, Jackie Bradley's mo has always been to take a lot of pitches, but um, obviously, if, if you can you can adjust the team philosophy, we've seen teams do it uh, more aggressively um, offensively the last few years, and this seems to be one that's manifesting itself with the team that's. Um, off to you know tie with the Mets for the best record in baseball and playing looks to be like they actually look to be a, a juggernaut right now. Yeah, and even with Andrew Bogarts injured, unfortunately for him, he was off to a great start. As I believe you you pointed out earlier, has already tied twenty seventeen in terms of barrels hit. Yeah, he has six already this year. He had six all of last year. <laughs> My and last year was stat. A, last year it was a hand injury. I think he kind of lucked out with that injury this weekend when he when he slid into the dugout. It looked like that could have been like a serious, oh, yeah. but it was a, a non-displaced fracture. He'll miss a couple of weeks. I mean, hopefully it doesn't like screw up with it too much with the rhythm that he had going because he was crushing the ball. He had two like two batted balls above 109 miles an hour. I think in that game before he got hurt, he's really been uh, he's really looked impressive. Well, that is our show for this week, and I think you all enjoy knowing that we are going to rush back to our desks to watch Luis Perdomo and Franchi Cordero in Coors Field. I can't wait. This is our MLB.com Stackcast podcast.